0: Hello and welcome to episode 229 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story from the south coast of England involves a plot to import millions of pounds of cocaine into Britain in a storyline straight out of a thriller. But before we get there, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially these new members of this exclusive club, that is Sophie Faulkner, Jackie Stanway. Caitlin Roberts, Hannah Jackson and Lisa Lambden. Thank you all so much for your support, it's much appreciated. If you're not part of Patreon yet, why don't you do the right thing and join us at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, you know it makes sense. Let's set some context to the story and play the guest of the month and year game. Top of the UK charts was Nothing On You from Bob, featuring Bruno Mars. And number one in Australia and the US was Usher featuring Will I Am with OMG. Just Call Me Dave became Prime Minister, forming the coalition with everybody's favourite bag carrier and door opener for Mark Zuckerberg, Nick Clegg, of course. The 51,700 seat Aviva Stadium was officially opened on the site of the famous old Lansdowne Road in Dublin by the Irish Prime Minister, Brian Cowan. Gary Coleman, the actor one of my favourite shows of my childhood, Different Strokes, remember that? Died at just 42. And in UK true crime news, 40-year-old Stephen Griffiths was charged with the murder of three women whose bodies were found in Bradford. Did you get the month and year? It was May 2010. Today's story comes from the Isle of Wight just off England's south coast. Most famous, I... <laughs> hate to say it in modern times, David Icke. Please correct me if I'm wrong. The two main jails on the island, Parkhurst and Albany, have housed some of the very worst prisoners and you may recall that it's a place I know very well as my mum grew up here and I've spent a lot of time on the island, especially on the more rugged south and west where today's story is based. Jamie Green was a fisherman and owner of an 11 metre fishing boat known as the Jamie grew up in the Isle of Wight and was married to Nicky and a dad to Maisie, Poppy and Jessie. He was fishing mad as a child and he left school at 16, bought his first boat at 17 and in 2010 he bought the 39-foot Galwad e Everyone knew of Jamie's all-engulfing love for fishing with his sister telling The Guardian newspaper As a kid, Jamie was fishing mad That's all he's ever done. Jamie had been in trouble a few times for public order offences and drunkenness and he always pleaded guilty to what he'd done. His sister, Nicky, again described it as, I quote, he was a roughy-tufty fisherman who didn't suffer fools gladly and there are a lot of fools around Yarmouth. When we joined the story in 2010, Jamie had now been married to Nicky for 21 years and at this time she was suffering from breast cancer. The fishing business was doing well, and had gone beyond supplying local markets to developing new customers further afield, such as London fishmongers and restaurants, as well as exporting produce to France and Spain. Jamie kept his boat in a marina on the west coast of the island where he lived, in Yarmouth, and his family owned a restaurant there, Salties. It had been started by his family in a lovely spot close to the marina over 25 years before. And during that time it had developed from a more rustic, shall we say, fish shop in a converted garage, to a bar and then to a restaurant as well. Scott Whistle, like Jamie, had always been mad about fishing. He was from Sussex, near Selsi Bill, and when he left school he knew that fishing was the career he wished to follow, as it gave him the freedom he desired and it didn't feel like real work to him. After his schooling finished, he placed an advert looking for fishing work. This was seen in December 2009 by Jamie Green, who contacted him, and within a matter of weeks, Scott had agreed to work as a full-time crew on Jamie's fishing boat. Jamie even sorted him out with accommodation in Yarmouth in a caravan on land that was owned by Jamie. Jamie was like a mentor to Scott. He taught him a lot and gave him responsibility too. Scott would later tell the Guardian, Jamie knew his stuff and he taught me so much. In Celsi, skippers take control and don't cheat you anything in case you get your own boat and take their business. With Jamie, it was different. Finding other crew was difficult and there was a high turnover of people who joined Jamie and Scott on some of their trips. Some were recommendations or friends of friends. Others had known Jamie for many years, such as local man Dan Payne. Although Dan worked in building, he loved to fish too, and he joined Jamie on numerous occasions over the years. When he spoke to the Guardian, he compared Jamie to Quint, the shark hunter from Jaws, saying, Well, that was Jamie. I used to call him Quint. He'd bark and shout if you were doing it wrong, but he sure knows his way around a boat. I'd worked for Jamie a lot over the years and I used to enjoy it. My dad was a submariner and I've always been around the sea. But by then I was living with my girlfriend, we'd a rescue dog, and I didn't want to go out on the boat for days on end. I was doing more building work for nearly as much money, but I knew Nicky was ill and Jamie was having problems finding crew. The work is ridiculously hard and it's always dangerous. Even in the calmest weather, there's rope flying, the stink of rotting crab and fish and diesel. Most people only came once. So when Jamie asked Dan if he could join the crew for a weekend trip on Saturday the 29th of May, Dan was happy to come along. And the trio were joined by another man unknown to them. This was 36-year-old Zoran Drezic from Montenegro. Zoran was married with three young children, and he'd been promised work fishing by a friend of a friend, which wasn't uncommon in Yarmouth, where people holding a variety of passports tried to get work on the boats. And talking of passports, Zoran had a false passport, which he'd managed to get into the UK just two days before, following stints working in Italy and Austria. But like other local fishermen, Jamie found it hard to get people to join his crew, and he wasn't managing IBM. Extensive pre-employment checks were not part of the procedure for getting a job on his boat. The four men set off on the afternoon of Saturday, the twenty-ninth of May, heading south beyond Saint Catherine's Point, into the English Channel, and the shipping lanes where the huge cargo ships, like the one recently freed from the Suez Canal, head west to the U.S and east to mainland Europe. It can be a really busy patch and it's no place for an inexperienced crew. But between the shipping lanes is a five-mile patch which is similar to a motorway central reservation which sees far fewer fishing vessels. The weather was bad when they set off but by midnight the weather had cleared a little and Jamie was confident, or rather hopeful, of a good haul from the trip. After a night fishing, by Sunday, the Galwad headed back to the island coast, staying close to the southwest coast of the island all day. It was a stunning summer's day, and walkers, cyclists, motorbikers, and even the surfers at nearby Compton Bay would have seen the Galwad as it headed close to the shore at Freshwater. Freshwater is a very pretty place in the lee of Tennyson Down, where the great poet used to stride back in his day, dressed in his ominous dark black cape. Freshwater was a prime location for some mackerel fishing. When they were done, Jamie started the engine again as the boat headed west and then north past the needles, through the channel at Hurst Castle and then onto the harbour at Yarmouth. Jamie's sister was working at the family restaurant and clearly recalled what happened next. It was a bank holiday weekend and Salty's was jam-packed with tourists and locals enjoying the food and the fine views. She called Jamie to ask him to bring some more lobsters to the restaurant, when someone told her that he'd been arrested. She thought nothing of it, thinking it would be just another local dispute, probably with other fishermen, but this couldn't have been further from the truth. When the crew had arrived at the marina and were starting to unpack their load, they were arrested. On suspicion of importing cocaine. Despite the crew's complaints, there had to be some sort of mistake. Detectives didn't think so, and in fact, they were so confident they had their men banged to rights that the charge sheet read possession and intent to supply. They were suspected of trying to import 250 kilos of cocaine into the UK with a street value of well over 50 million pounds. As the men were taken away, the fishing boat was thoroughly searched using specialist equipment, but no cocaine was found. The next day, back in Freshwater Bay, the drugs they expected to find on the Galward were recovered. They were in 11 holdles, which were all filled with pure cocaine and strung together on rope in the bay and attached to a buoy that had been weighted down. Despite their protestations of innocence, the men were all charged and later faced trial at Kingston Crown Court. It transpired that on the day that Jamie and the crew had set sail, also active in the same area that weekend were a large number of law enforcement officers, as part of Operation Disorient, a major operation being run by the Serious Organised Crime Agency, or Soccer. They were working on intelligence so that a large drugs importation was being planned from a big container ship from South America. The load was planned to be picked up by a smaller boat and taken ashore in one of the more sleepy harbours in the Isle of Wight or the south coast where customs checks were at a minimum. That Saturday evening, the MSC Orion was making passage from Brazil to Holland and was under suspicion. To assist this big operation, there were surveillance planes, ships, HM Customs cutters, all active on the English Channel and on the Sunday, undercover officers lined the cliffs of the Isle of Wight, mingling with the tourists and locals as the Galwad headed back towards Freshwater Bay. Detectives believed that at twelve forty a m early on the Sunday morning, there was a period of time when the Galwad reduced speed from five knots to point fifty seven of a knot. It was at this point that the fishing boat came very close to the path of the Orient, and investigators believed it managed to pick up the 11 holders of pure cocaine that had been dumped from the container ship. Interestingly, the container ship was searched when it next touched British shores a few days later, but no trace of drugs was ever found. No one from the ship was arrested. A key man in the prosecution case was an island man, 42-year-old John Beer, who was arrested eight months later and faced the jury alongside the crew of the Galwad. Beer had been married for 18 years and had three young children. He ran a scaffolding business on the north of the island. And if you've spent time on the Isle of Wight, you will understand what John's wife meant when she said that her husband had known Jamie, and although they weren't close friends by any means, they'd known each other for years. As most people on the Isle of Wight, there's some sort of connection. It's a small place. Much to his surprise, detectives saw Beer as the mastermind of the whole operation. The day before the fateful trip, he'd been on the ferry to Portsmouth, where he'd picked up the new crew member, Dresic and two other men, and taken them to Jamie. Detectives claimed he'd received calls from Jamie via satellite phone while on the trip, but the crew said this was utter nonsense. As the timing of the calls was just coincidence and he was just checking on the health of one of the other fishermen, Drezic, who was seasick. And as an illegal immigrant, they knew they had to be careful in how they contacted him and how they spoke about him. There were other two key parts of evidence, both disputed in court. The first referred to just how close the Galwad got to the container ship in the Channel, The prosecution argued that the Galwad was acting erratically and got very close to the container ship. At the trial the prosecution relied on navigational data taken from onboard computers on the two vessels which demonstrated to the jury that the Galwad crossed the Oriane's wake. There would have been a short window of time when the 11 holders of cocaine could be moved to the fishing boat. The defence weren't having this for one moment, pointing out it was the middle of the night in a Force 8 gale in the channel, it was dark and a heavy sea was running. One expert was amazed and almost amused by the prosecution's claims. He made it clear that in his view, it wouldn't have been possible for anyone on the container ship, which at the time was travelling at 18 knots, it didn't slow down at any point, who would have risked ripping the holdals apart if they'd been thrown into the sea. The same witness described that it had been pretty much impossible for the Galwad to pick up even one holdle in the three and a half minutes when they killed the speed, let alone eleven. There was other key evidence which came from members of the Hampshire Constabulary, who were watching the Galwad from the clifftops on the Sunday as it motored towards Freshwater Bay, where the cocaine was later found. Two officers maintained logs of what they'd seen. In the officers' logs, before the drugs were found, they recorded that someone on the fishing boat was throwing six or seven items overboard at intervals. This wasn't disputed by the crew, who said it could easily have been bags of old bait or food. The drugs were found the next day, and it was now that the two police officers changed the log. Like me, you may be surprised to find that that's absolutely fine. They were fully allowed to do that. And this time the story changed to match what they knew had been found. They now said they saw 10 to 12 items the size of a holdall, tied together in a line and thrown from the boat and attached to a red floating buoy. If this doesn't make you question the accuracy of the evidence enough, at least it's hard to say they were collaborating as they both gave different accounts in court. One said he was fully aware of the significance of what he had seen, and the significance that the holders held at the time. The other officer said he didn't see any significance until the next day after the drugs were found. Incidentally, the Independent Police Complaints Commission did look into this case, and this evidence in particular. They concluded that there were inconsistencies in the officers' evidence but that evidence was not enough to conclude that they had lied and complaints against the two officers were dismissed. When the jury had heard the evidence, they returned to announce their verdicts. By a majority of 11 to 1, they found the men guilty. They didn't believe the fishermen. Jamie Green was convicted of conspiracy to import cocaine along with Daniel Payne Scott Whistle, Jonathan Beer and Zoran Drezic. Soccer's Chris Farriman said, These men believe their meticulously planned drugs run would look like a commercial fishing expedition. Rather than bringing them massive profits, however, their plan has put them in the same unenviable position as many others who have been caught attempting to traffic drugs under the guise of legitimate business. The five were given the following hefty sentences. Jonathan Beer was sentenced to 24 years, as was Jamie Green and Zoran Drezic. Daniel Payne was sentenced to 18 years, and Scott Burtwistle received 14 years. There was disbelief in the courtroom from the men, their families and their supporters, and they immediately announced their plan to appeal. But it's a long process. In the meantime, Scott Burtwistle was released in 2017 and Dan Payne was also released out on licence. But they too wanted to clear their names. But before we get to what happened to the appeal, let's pause just a second to consider the effect of this verdict on the families of the men that were sent to prison. Jonathan Beer's wife, Sue, told The Guardian in 2020, I don't know how I've got through it, if I'm honest. Support, love, family, friends and believing in John. My dad does the blue jobs, splitting the wood, fixing the car. My mum has been amazing to children. When John was arrested, our eldest was doing her GCSEs, and our youngest still in play school. He's missed Ellie, getting her GCSE results. He's missed the birth of Willow, his first grandchild. He's missed two graduations, Maisie's first communion, Flynn's first day at primary, his last day at primary. John has never seen Flynn play football, and Flynn's in the top team on the island. He missed his best friend's funeral last year. Births, marriages, deaths, everything. Jamie Green, too, has missed so much in prison. His children now have children of their own, and they've both started work in their fishing industry. His wife, Nicky, tragically died of cancer when Jamie been in prison for just four years, and she was unable to visit him for almost two years. Jamie was allowed to attend the funeral, and in a very upsetting and moving affair, Jamie, chained to a prison guard, gave the eulogy for his wife. An appeal against the conviction for two of the men was scheduled for 2021, and there was hope amongst the legal team led by Mv Bolton. New evidence not disclosed at the original trial showed that when the supposed drop of drugs took place on the Oriane, The container ship had in fact been heading south rather than east and so was a greater distance away from the Galwad. And most significantly, at the time the drugs were thought to be dropped in Freshwater Bay, another vessel was seen in the area after the Galwad had headed back home to Yarmouth. Emily Bolton said, This target can be seen travelling three quarters of a mile in front of the Coast Guard Cutter. Then this mysterious boat shoots off on a beeline for the location at which the drugs were later found. Whether it's a real smuggler's panicking and dumping drugs, or a law enforcement vessel that learned that there were no drugs left behind by the fishing boats in Freshwater Bay, it should have been disclosed, as it is vital evidence. However, in court nothing was mentioned about this boat or its movements. She added, the fresh evidence that we bring in for the Court of Appeal we think really cracks the case wide open. It shows exactly what happened, and that is not what the court was led to believe at the trial. And just last week, you may have seen it in the papers and online, the verdict came from the Court of Appeal, where Jonathan Beer and Daniel Payne lost their bid to overturn their convictions at the Court of Appeal. The two judges said Standing back and looking at all the evidence available at trial, as well as the evidence now available, whilst the evidence is circumstantial, this was a compelling prosecution case of conspiracy to import cocaine. The grounds of appeal do not begin individually or collectively to cast doubt on the safety of these applicants' convictions. The applications for leave to appeal conviction are accordingly refused, as are the applications for an extension of time and to reduce fresh evidence. A statement issued by The Crew, the so-called Freshwater Five, said This is a bitter and dark day for the men and their families. Yet again, our faith in the criminal justice system has been shattered. These men are innocent and have collectively spent decades in prison for a crime they didn't commit. Today, in a ruling against John Beer and Danny Payne, The court has once again whitewashed over what has happened in this case. Just four days after John's dad died, having lost his battle, to hold out long enough to see his son vindicated. At this next funeral, we'll be mourning the death of John's father, but also the death of British justice. This pitiful judgement is yet another example of the system protecting itself from embarrassment and criticism. If the Court of Appeal and the Criminal Cases Review Commission won't correct this mistake, where else do we turn? British justice is broken and we will never trust it again. And finally, Emily Bolton, who's director of the charity appeal, who represents the Freshwater Five said in the statement Miscarriages of justice don't just happen in the trial courts, today one happened in the Court of Appeal. The court handed down a judgement which simply underscores just how profoundly broken the criminal appeals system is in this country. There is no dispute that this is a case in which law enforcement and the prosecution failed to hand over crucial evidence to the defence at trial. As we showed in the court hearing, the new evidence undermines the prosecution's case on several fronts and gives a totally different picture to that which was presented to the jury. Yet, in another failure to correct a miscarriage of justice, the Court of Appeal has said today that none of this matters. We have no doubt that law enforcement holds further evidence which supports the Freshwater Five's innocence. Yet our opaque, unaccountable justice system continues to prevent the truth from coming to light. To those with short memories, it's worth bearing in mind it took three appeals before the Birmingham Six finally had their names cleared. The Freshwater Five, their families and the appeal team will keep battling for justice and reform. So what do you make of what you've heard today? Are the men guilty? I know I'm supposed to sit on the fence and give arguments for both sides, but today, you know, I really can't. I just don't see their guilt for a moment, do you? I wonder how you would feel if someone close to you were sent to prison for so long on such flimsy evidence. But of course now it will take more time until they are finally released and shown to be innocent. And in the meantime, the family of those in prison carry on living life and those inside miss out. It is, you could argue, a scandal. And whilst the convictions are still there, even the two men released always have people looking and pointing at them, the mud sticks. This is what Dan Payne said when he was released. I'm looking forward to getting home, cuddling my mum and dad, and having some good food. I can't believe my dog has lasted this long, but she'll be there to greet me. I've missed the sea so much I reckon it's salt water running in my veins. I've had nine years of my life stolen from me for something I didn't do. I may have been released from prison, but I'm still not free. Only the Court of Appeal and put this right now. But as we know, they didn't. They let him and the others down, once again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. And to support the show and get all the bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes news and updates and make yourself a better person, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime monthly subscription you can cancel whenever you like from as little as one pound a month so it's all for me for today so until we speak again next week please do take it easy and despite all the others stay classy cheerio for now okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry Ooh, a book club